Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper. I also have a very exciting announcement, which is that my co-host, Kate Pacheco, and I will be doing a live taping of the Katie Helper Show Saturday, June 30th at 7 p.m. at Caveat. And our special guest will be writer Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People and What's the Matter with Kansas. Again, that's Saturday, June 30th at Caveat. Caveat is located at 21A Clinton Street, and the tickets will be up shortly at caveat.myc and at the Katie Halper Show Facebook page. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, find us on SoundCloud, and make sure that you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show for bonus content. I'm really excited to be talking to Aaron Mate, who is a reporter and producer with The Real News and a writer at The Nation magazine. Welcome. Hi, Katie. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So you write a lot about Russiagate. And uh, May 17th marked the one-year anniversary of the appointment of former FBI Director Robert Mueller as special counsel. Can you tell us about what he's discovered in this year-long process of investigation and intrigue? Yes. So uh, the big figures being thrown around on this one-year anniversary is that uh, Mueller secured, I believe, 19 indictments uh, and uh, several guilty pleas from uh, Michael Flynn, the former National Security Advisor, from George Papadopoulos, uh, who was a uh, volunteer aide on the Trump campaign, uh, from a, uh, a lawyer who worked for uh, who worked for Rick Gates, who was an associate of Paul Manafort, and Rick Gates also worked on the Trump campaign as well. Um, and, uh, uh, and also a guilty plea from Rick Gates himself. Uh, he was the close with Manafort and was a deputy on the Trump campaign. And so this is seen as a big achievement for this, this investigation that has consumed American media and political life for the past year. Uh, and the, you know, the general feeling is that Mueller is just getting started and that actually compared to other previous presidential scandals, he's already accomplished a lot. Um, he's also in, indicted, uh, 13 Russians, uh, who were allegedly involved in this troll farm operation to, uh, sow discord in the U.S. election and support the candidacy of Donald Trump. What I think is important to look at though is that none of the indictments, first of all, have anything to do with the purported topic of this whole thing, which is uh, a Trump-Russia conspiracy to win the election for Trump. Like, none of these uh, pleas or charges have anything to do with coordinating to win the, 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 the election. So, for example, the charges against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, uh, they have big fancy words like conspiracy, conspiracy against the U.S. and stuff. But... That's just a fancy way of saying that they're they're accusing them of, of money laundering for uh, for funds that they earned while working in Ukraine way before the way, way before the election. So they have nothing actually to do with the U.S. election. Uh, and the the FBI previously investigated that and didn't bring charges. So it's like that is not even a new case. Now, there's a lot of evidence that they have, and it's quite possible that Manafort and Gates did engage in money laundering. But um the uh, the problem with it is that again, this has nothing to do with the actual U.S. election and this and this allegation that Manafort 
may have conspired with, with the Kremlin to help elect Trump. Um, the pleas against Flynn and Papadopoulos, those have to do with lying to the FBI. So they're process crimes. So they, they're crimes, they're allegations that have to do with after the U.S. election, after the fact, and they have to do with the, the investigation itself. So they didn't do time travel and somehow engineer the 2016 election. That's your that's your claim that when they were talking yes. to yes. Uh, to Russia after Trump was elected, yeah, that was not evidence. That of is my actually- that is my contention. And with, to me, there's there's plausible reasons for why they lied to the FBI that that have nothing, that have nothing to do with some big cover up of a conspiracy. In Flynn's case, he did speak to the Russian ambassador um, Sergei uh, Kislyak uh, during the transition period between. Uh, Trump's election and Trump's inauguration. And he did that. Uh, th- the main thing he did we know about was they uh, Flynn and the Trump campaign were trying to undermine Obama at the U.N. And uh, because Obama was going to let pass a U.N. Security Council resolution criticizing Israel for settlement building. And the Israeli government asked the Trump campaign to undermine that. And they did. Uh, and part of that involved talking to the Russian ambassador. In fact, that was the topic of Flynn's first call to the Russian ambassador. Now, uh, it didn't succeed. Russia voted with other members of the, of the Security Council for that resolution. Uh, and then the second conversation between Flynn and the Russian ambassador was about sanctions, where basically uh, after it was alleged that uh, Russia had interfered to elect Donald Trump, Obama... Um, pushed through new sanctions against Russia. And Flynn called the Russian ambassador and said, look, we're coming in in a few weeks anyway, so just don't don't escalate the situation when you react. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, that is deemed to be suspicious, but, uh, you know, in the same way that Flynn was trying to undermine Obama uh, at the UN about Israel, that to me just follows with a pattern of just telling to the Russians, look, this is going to be our policy soon, so, you know, like you should act accordingly based on the fact that we're about to come in anyway. And with Papadopoulos, so Papadopoulos is now this main figure. He was a volunteer campaign aide, and he's also been indicted, not for any kind of collusion stuff, but for lying to the FBI about his contacts with people who told him that they had contacts with the Russian government. So it's often reported when we talk about Papadopoulos that he spoke to people, he spoke to Russians, he spoke to Russian officials. That's not true. He spoke to people who told him that they had contacts in Russia. Okay. And one of those people is this weird professor named Joseph Mifsud. He's this kooky guy with like weird credentials, maybe fake credentials. And Papadopoulos says that Mifsud told him that the Russian government had thousands of Hillary Clinton emails. Um, and the reason this is significant is because uh, Mifsud told this to Papadopoulos in April 2016, which is way before the uh, it was revealed by WikiLeaks um, that they had stolen Democratic Party emails. First, they published, or first uh, something called DC Leaks published uh, DNC emails, and later on WikiLeaks published the John Podesta emails. Right. And so, if this guy Masood tells Papadopoulos in April 2016 that the Russian government has thousands of emails then, you know, that is that is pretty glaring because it means that somebody knew about these emails before they were publicly revealed. But what I think actually happened, I can't prove this yet, but my what I think actually was going on was whatever Ms. Sud's motives were, 
I think he's a shady guy. I don't think he actually has any Kremlin connections. I think he might have just seen in Papadopoulos an opportunity to get close to the Trump campaign because he's like this, you know, he has this he has this history of sort of being a uh, sort of a um, a playboy on the diplomatic scene, like it just not, not sexually, but just going right. to different going to different conferences, sure. burnishing his credentials. And I think he saw in Papadopoulos maybe an opportunity to get close to the Trump campaign. So he was promising him something. And I think what he was saying with those emails, I suspect, and we'll find out, hopefully, I suspect he was talking, he was using the talking point, which had been out in the media for years now, which is that Hillary Clinton had her thousands of State Department emails uh, because she used that private right. server. And in fact, people had, some hackers had claimed before that they had hacked them. So I think that what Ms. Sud was doing was trying to impress Papadopoulos and saying that, you know, hey, my contacts in Russia right. have these thousands of Hillary Clinton's State Department emails. And I think, I suspect that that's what led to this whole thing. Because then, as we know, Papadopoulos, Papadopoulos later on got drunk and he told uh, the Australian ambassador in London that he had been told this. The Australian ambassador in London then told this to his people his, and, their, and, and the Australians then told the FBI and that sparked this whole thing. Okay. So what I suspect is, and I can't prove this yet, but I suspect that this whole thing started in large part because a weird dude, Mifsud, tried to impress a low-level campaign aide, Papadopoulos, in London uh, with a, to- a public talking point that had nothing to do with the actual emails of in the 2016 election. Okay. Uh, and then Papadopoulos got drunk, ran his mouth, and here we are today. So let's say, though, that those things were true, what Masood said yeah. were true. What does that mean in terms of uh, the role of Russia and in the election? Like, make the most convincing okay, argument so on if, behalf of the Russiagate narrative. Okay, so it, if in April 2016, Masood did tell Papadopoulos about these emails... And again, so th- we're going off hearsay. We're going sure, off. Right. We're, we're going off what Papadopoulos yeah. says. Mifsud says. Right. Totally. I just want to know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if Mifsud was talking about the stolen DNC emails, right. Then that is significant because that means that he knew before it was publicly uh, known that the DNC emails were stolen. Okay. But I just want to stick in. He said stolen Hillary Clinton emails. Right. And uh, at that time, what? what a public talking point for right-wing conspiracists sure. was that Hillary Clinton's emails were were out there, you right. know, because she used this the private server. server. Right. So, right. Um, so yes, then it's significant that somebody with connections to Mifsud knew uh, that the DNC emails were stolen, and that Mifsud knew. But the the so let's take that yeah. that to be true. The only proven link he has to the Russian government is that he like spoke at some conferences organized by a think tank that's like. Kind of close to the Russian government. Okay. I still don't think he's a, uh, I don't think there's a reason to believe he's a Kremlin operative. Right. If he is, he's a strange one and right. he's a kooky one. Not very good one. Not, 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 not a very good one. He was made. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he worked, interestingly, I mean, this is a whole other tangent, but he worked at a think tank in, in, uh, in London with people who were close to the Clintons. Ah, interesting. So, like, the other, the, the flip side of that, there's some, like, conspiracies that actually Mifsud was a plant by the, by, the, by the Democrats to entrap Papadopoulos 
into the into uh, you know into and then and then taint the Trump campaign. Okay. I, I doubt that personally, but you know there, you'll you'll find people believe right. that. So if though, I mean, we know that actually Flynn was talking to Russia about the Israel. We certainly do. We do. So that does that mean that there was Israeli collusion? I think the one proven case of a Trump campaign collusion with a foreign power right. is Israel. It's funny. It's, you don't hear about that. There's no Israel gate. It's, it, it's very funny. It's very, very funny. And what's amazing is they did it um, to undermine Obama at the highest you know, international level, the UN Security Council. Right. So Obama's trying to pass through this measure. It's like one of his last major acts in office. And the Netanyahu talks to Trump people. Jared Kushner gets the marching orders to go out and undermine this UN Security Council vote. So, like, they called not just Russia, but everybody on the council with this intense lobbying campaign to try to get somebody to vote no, to, to veto uh, this measure that, tr- that Obama was letting pass. Because right, because Obama, he was just agreeing to not vote against it, He right? was letting it slide. Yeah, he was letting it slide. After previously vetoing right. several other measures, criticizing Israel, asking Israel to uphold, uphold international law, Obama vetoed right. all those. Uh, but finally, in like at the end, which is always what happens under Democrats when it's too late, sure. they're, they're letting this one slide. So according to the narrative that, you know, Putin and uh, Trump are boyfriends, right? Mm-hmm. Which we've seen a lot of uh, funny memes about. Homophobic memes, homophobic yes. Homophobic memes yes. about the, with them kissing, which yes. is really funny so and funny. edgy. So funny. Um, but if they are in bed, politically speaking, in bed with each other, it's not a very close relationship because Russia wound up not voting with the United States. That's significant. The very first known contact between the Trump campaign and Russia after the election is about this topic. Right. And the result was Russia voting against what Flynn was trying to right. get them to do. So maybe, though, in that relationship, Russia plays hard to get. Maybe Russia plays right? hard to get. And, and, yes. like, and Trump falls for that stuff. Maybe that's his style. Yes. That's their dynamic. Yes. Yes. Um, Russia's like coy and demure. Putin's a coy and demure yes. partner, boyfriend to, to By the Donald. Way, I think I know the reason why. I, I have, a, I have a, a strong guess for why Trump is, has been so friendly to Putin. Like ever, for everyone, it's like this big mystery. Right. Like why is Trump so nice to Putin and stuff? But I mean, by the way, no one asked that about like uh, why is Trump so nice to, to Benjamin Netanyahu, to, Saudi, so nice Saudi to, to the Saudi tyrants. Yeah. But anyway, you know, we know now that the Trump camp, the, the Trump organization, uh, with these sort of like slapstick uh, comedy mafioso types, uh, Felix Sater, who was like a Trump organization affiliate, and also Trump's fixer, Michael Cohen, that they were involved in this effort to try to get Russia on board with Trump Moscow. And Trump really wanted to build the Trump Tower in Moscow. And they signed a letter of intent, actually, during the campaign, which coincides with Trump saying all these... Cohen sides. You're welcome. You're welcome, everyone. That's really good. You can all use that. Um, So, which, so Trump signs this letter of intent to build Trump Moscow during the campaign. And, you know, and at the same time, he's saying all these nice things about Putin. Um, So it wouldn't surprise me if he was like using the campaign trail to like big up Putin. And by the way, this is at a time when, you know, according to to the book Fire and Fury, he didn't think he would win. So he's got all this free media. So it's like, you know, I, I think that, I suspect that that was a strong motivating factor. 
it confirm it, which would mean that it confirms what we already know about him, which is that he's like a you know crass opportunist right, with no morals and uses politics for his own personal um, gain and gain. But you know, I, I, it's like the, it, whether that then leads to this massive high level conspiracy, right? I don't think it does. Well, also, how nice is Trump now to Putin? I mean, people seem to be making the argument that Trump is really nice to the Kremlin. I mean, what? But Trump has taken some actions against Russia, and he tweeted about how he's, you know, how Putin's an animal or friends with the animal Assad. Yes. There's an awkward fact for people who really believe that Trump is in Putin's pocket to reconcile with, which is that Trump and his people have been way more hawkish towards Russia than, than Obama was. Way more, right? Profoundly more. Which means that in, if that if he if he's a boyfriend of Putin, then Obama is like a husband. To exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, he's uh, sold what he sold weapons to Ukraine, uh, which is a, a step that Obama did not do because he did not want to further inflame the proxy war going on there between the Ukrainian government and separatists backed by Russia. Um, Trump has Trump has admitted a new NATO member, Montenegro, over Russian objections. He's took, taken part in the largest NATO war games on Russia's borders ever. Uh, the whole he's in Syria. He's now bombed Syria twice. Um, he's appointed a series of Russia hawks to to key posts. I mean, you can go his his new nuclear and military strategy is like insane, and both of them specifically target. Russia, uh, the the defense, mil- the recent defense military strategy says that now Russia and, Ch- and China are more of a threat and more of a U.S. national security priority than than ISIS is. Uh, and in the words of James Mattis, he said that the that the era of great power competition is upon us. Wow. Okay. So according to that, then. Donald Trump is playing footsie with Putin, mm-hmm. and uh, Obama was actually his life partner. Obama was Putin's life partner. That's <laughs> yes. You heard yeah. it here first, ladies yes. and gentlemen. Yeah, I mean by those standards, yes. Now yeah. people will point the fact that tr- uh, Trump hasn't criticized Putin, uh, and that you know he made that phone call where he congratulated Putin for winning his election. But I, I, my concern there is like you know whatever whatever personally might be going on with Trump, whatever he tweets about. It might not be as important as what his actual policies are. Right. But also his tweets. What was that tweet he did um, after the alleged chemical? Uh, he wrote, tweeted, Russia vows to shoot down any and all missiles fired at Syria. Get ready, Russia, because they will be coming nice and new and smart. You shouldn't be partners with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it! Exclamation point. That was on April 11th. I don't know what a gas-killing animal is. Um but, I mean, again, why focus on Trump's tweets? Although that seems to be the plan for a lot of the resistance. It's focusing on his tweets and on how Robert Mueller is going to bring Trump down. That's exactly right. We have been so, I think the spectacle of Trump in the White House has been so shocking and still hard to accept, you know, starting with Election Day. And I don't think a lot of us have gotten over it. And so it means that we're going to, it's like every, every time he opens his mouth and says something crazy, it's just, it's so, it's like, it's like, it's a trigger. Yeah. You know, and it mean, and I understand it, but it, it means that we, I think we take our eye off the ball. Right. And we've spent so much time over the past year of this Mueller investigation. Like cable news is just nonstop with every single detail. And ultimately, in the long run, I don't think they're very consequential. Um, I think a lot of things that we've taken to be significant in Russiagate 
are really overblown and certainly, to me, not as important as Trump's actual policies, with not just toward Russia, which I think are actually very dangerous, um, but also, you know, just the, like, think about the attention that the Mueller investigation has gotten versus the tax bill, like the, one of the biggest scams in U.S. history, the, one of the biggest upward transfers of wealth in U.S. history, if not the biggest, uh, healthcare, immigration, everything, all this stuff is getting sidelined because we're all so obsessed with this Mueller thing and people really think that it's going to bring Trump down. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the cable news interest or obsession with this story. You wrote um, about this for The Intercept last year, about Rachel Maddow's focus on Russiagate. Can you talk a little bit about this? I have long been a really big fan of uh, Rachel Maddow. I think she's so talented as a broadcaster and just really smart. And Road scholar. Road scholar. I mean, you know, and... Uh, and you know, I remember during the Flint water crisis, yeah. more than any other cable news show, she really hammered on it and helped bring it to national attention. I think deserves a lot of credit for it. But I think with this Russiagate stuff, it, uh, her coverage has been uh, reckless journalistically and, um, and really dangerous and I think really toxic and um, implanted in liberals, her audience, because she's the biggest, she's the top rated cable news host. A, this, uh, this idea of there being a conspiracy between Trump and Russia and being convinced of it and convinced that that's going to bring Trump down. And I think she set people up for a real letdown. Um, she has, I wrote about how she's covered Russiagate more than all other issues combined. And at the time, it, it was like, it, it was pretty, it was a pretty big margin, but I'm sure now it's, it's growing even, like the gap is growing even further because it's, it's pretty much all she ever talks about. And she's pushed some really, I think, insane conspiracy theories. She said that um, she strongly suggested through visuals and through like her long sort of uh, explainers, mo explainers and monologues, <laughs> exactly uh, that you know she, she suggested strongly that Putin is responsible for getting Tillerson picked as the Secretary of State because Tillerson worked for Exxon when uh, and Exxon had deals with Putin. That with the Russian government and Putin gave Tillerson a, like some sort of award. When really we actually know, at least from reporting, that it was neocons. It was Condoleezza Rice who recommended uh, who, who recommended Tillerson for the job. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah. that. Thanks, uh, Condi. Yeah. And, yes, thank you, Condi. And then, of course, when Tillerson got fired recently, uh, Maddow also suggested that it was Putin who got Tillerson fired. So both hired and fired. Same thing with H.R. McMaster. After H.R. McMaster said something about Russian interference, then he got fired. Um, and so Maddow said that, that right. you know, she said that uh, Putin is getting Trump to bleed out the FBI. Um, she's back before Trump's inauguration. This was the craziest one. A few days before Trump's inauguration, Maddow talked about, this was right after the news about the P-tape had come out, that there was this allegation the Russians had a P-tape of Trump. So Maddow did this segment about, okay, like right now we have thousands of U.S. troops that are near uh, Russia's borders in Poland and, and other states, okay? Is Putin going to use this P-tape to blackmail Trump into withdrawing these troops? We are days away from the, from the inauguration. We're about to find out. Watch this space. And it, it was serious. Like, it was serious. And, of course, what happened was, surprisingly, Trump did not withdraw the U.S. troops. He actually increased them in, in Europe. Which brings up another point, which is, does Rachel Maddow want Trump to be more hawkish? 
and want him to be fighting and provoking a nuclear power that is Russia. Seems like liberals like Maddow are actually encouraging Donald Trump as commander in chief to be more hawkish. And I thought that liberals, even liberal humanitarian interventionists, wouldn't want Donald Trump overseeing wars. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of uh, logical uh, outcome of the um, uh, narrative and of the complaints that liberals like Maddow have have pushed and pressed, which is that we're not being hawkish enough on Russia. We're not like we're being soft. You know, when meanwhile, um, we've actually Trump has actually imposed sanctions. He's kicked out diplomats. Um, and, you know, after these Russian troll farm workers were indicted, you had people like Gerald Nadler comparing it to Pearl Harbor. Right. And others right. have compared it to Pearl Harbor. Um, Cardin. Ben Cardin, the senator yep. from Maryland, I think he compared it to either Pearl Harbor or 9-11. I now can't remember which happened, which thing happened on September 11th, if it was a hacking or uh, <laughs> yeah. the World Trade Center blew up. Yeah. They're so comparable. Exactly. Um, we should do a quiz, Pearl Harbor, <laughs> September 11th, or uh, hacking. It's, 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 I think what we're witnessing is a sort of a psychological breakdown. Yeah. But in public right. and amongst our top leaders and and officials. So it's like, I think they're traumatized by the fact that, that Donald Trump won. They can't accept it. Uh, it combines with this very entrenched sort of warmongering towards Russia that's gone on for a long time. Right. Uh, and so it's like this per it's like this toxic mix of like both like liberal mania with like Cold War hawkishness where so it's just this it, like the like the facts make no sense, but it's, it doesn't matter. Right. Because it's just, it's just like Russia is evil. Russia did this. Russia attacked this. So we can compare these like silly juvenile Facebook ads that nobody saw and that weren't even actually mostly about Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. We can compare that to like to Pearl Harbor. Well, you wrote a really great piece at The Nation called The Get Tough on Russia Consensus is Escalating the Crisis in Syria. Both John Bolton and top Democrats are calling for aggressive actions against Russia, curtailing diplomatic options. You say even before their current standoff over Syria, tensions between the United States and Russia were already at their highest point in years. Now an alleged chemical weapons attack in a country where both are militarily involved has raised the prospect of a direct confrontation between the world's two biggest nuclear powers. President Trump's personal temperament is undoubtedly compounding the current moment's dangers. The prevailing mindset of his Democratic opposition and liberal media critics, however, has also not helped. In the Obama era, Democrats spoke of a reset with Russia and even mocked Republicans for espousing Cold War views, which was what happened uh, with Mitt Romney, for example. Exactly. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat, because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda, you said Russia. In the 1980s or now, calling to ask for their foreign policy back. That stance has been abandoned in the Trump era. It is now standard for Democratic leaders to clamor for the White House to start toughening up our policies towards Russia and Putin, as Chuck Schumer said, and fight back to defend against Russian subversion so long as Washington demonstrates the political will to confront the threat, as Joe Biden said. According to the New York Times editorial board, the United States is recent closure of a Russian consulate and the expulsion of 60 Russian officials, quote, offer some hope that Trump may finally be forced to deal with the threat that Putin poses to the United States and its Western allies. Though to be sure, Mr. Trump will have to go even further to push back effectively against Putin's mischief. So 
How different are the positions of the Democrats and the New York Times from the position of John Bolton, who is known as a hawk? Yeah, what I was trying to write about there is that uh, when it comes to Russia, uh, Bolton has been a uh, longtime hawk. He and the point of that article was to say that now it, that Democrats might want to reconsider their hawkishness towards Russia, given that Bolton, one of the most dangerous people right. in U.S. government history, I think, I mean, just with an unhinged, radical, hawkish views that that, that really threaten world, world destruction. Yeah, if, said it would be fine if if some of the U.N. headquarters were oh yes, yeah, yes. were lost. Yeah. Um, Some of the floors, yeah. He, he's had really dangerous uh, views towards Russia. Towards and Iran and North Korea. Yeah. And, and, if to, and, and now uh, that he's in office, Democrats, instead of encouraging confrontation with Russia, might want to think about that when they have someone like Bolton in a position to take advantage of the hawkishness that they've been pushing. So, I mean, Bolton, Bolton oversaw one of the most consequential acts of the Bush administration, which was he pulled he he pulled the U.S. out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty, right. which is a really important treaty. It basically helped guarantee, um, you know, uh, it helped keep the peace. And when it comes to avoiding like nuclear Armageddon for three decades, uh, because it 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 basically enforced this doctrine of, of mutually insured destruction. So. Both countries had a certain number of, um, of missile defense systems, and it meant that, like, it basically meant that, like, if one country used their nukes on the other, then the other could could fire back, and everyone could be destroyed. Right. So it was a detente. It was a detente through like mutually assured destruction, right. and it worked. I mean, yeah. it was it's it's crazy, but it worked. And Bolton, uh, under Bush, pulled the U.S. out of that. And uh, which then led to a uh, a sort of like it sort of restarted the an arms race that had been kind of dormant. Right. And recently, Putin unveiled this whole new arsenal of of weapons, including nuclear weapons, and he called it a, a direct response to, to to that U.S. decision. And uh, it was Bolton who did it. Right. And Bolton stands by that. And he, he thinks it's great. And, and Bolton has said he wants to further dismantle the arms control. Um, structure that the U.S. and Russia are part of, including the New START Treaty, which was another important thing. So it's like, do we want to be encouraging this guy or do do we want to stand up to him? So you're basically saying then to to make sense of all of this would mean that the Democrats you're suggesting aren't the hawks that John Bolton is, but that they've been using um, Trump's alleged softness on Putin for purely political partisan reasons. That's exactly right. I don't think, and in fact, we saw that right after Putin's speech uh, when he talked about uh, when he unveiled this this new arsenal. This was in like, this was in early. This was in February or March. Um, he uh, 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 a handful of Democrats, uh, including Dianne Feinstein, who's who, who's a hawk on Russia, came out and said. We need to get back to arms control talks with Russia. Wow. Okay. Because they saw because because they heard Putin's speech and everyone focused on these new weapons, but actually a big part of his speech he was saying that like that like um, the U.S. withdrawal from the ABM was it was it was consequential and it's forced us to take these actions and we're going to keep you know and we're going to keep doing it and he actually but he also called for arms control talks too. Vaguely, but he but that was intent that was interpreted to be sure. the message. So you know I think that so it's like. But it shouldn't take Putin unveiling new weapons, new dangerous new weapons, to get us to favor 
this idea of cooperation with right. the not wor- wanting to end the world. Yeah, I mean, it's like you don't have to like Russia or right. like Putin just to say that we shouldn't be uh, warmongering with the world's other nuclear power. You so know. you think that, because I've often asked myself this and asked guests this, like, what is the end game? Do the Democrats actually want Trump to be fight to going to war with Putin? And and what you're saying, and this makes a lot of sense, is that it's just a political tool, but that hopefully now that John Bolton, someone who would do that, is 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 part of Trump's um, cabinet, that maybe they'll pull, they'll uh, mute this this kind of hawkish hysteria. Bolton has called this whole Russiagate thing an opportunity right. to confront Russia. And I quote him in the piece. He, uh, he, he talks about the Mueller investigation. He says it's stupid that there actually was no collusion. He said, but the focus on Russian interference does provide us with an opportunity to assert our power and to go after Russia. So the question for Democrats is, do you want to keep giving him this right. opportunity, like this platform? Or Bol- do you want Boltonian, to... The, Bol- the Bolton doctrine. Yeah. yeah. Or, or do you want to, like, just... Or you want to just actually stand up to the the, the Trump gang and right. not and not enable them? It's so weird. I mean, I wonder if any of the Democrats actually are so and liberal pundits are so traumatized by Trump's election that they don't even care. Like, do you think any of them are like, whatever? Let's just go to war with Putin. Let's just. Well, see, this is where I think Russia Gate is has been used to protect. It's been a really easy way for like for Democrats and liberals to stage a performative opposition to Trump without actually reckoning with anything that threatens their own privilege. Right. So, in fact, can you tell us where the origin of the Russiagate uh, narrative is in terms of... Well, we know from the book Shattered uh, by Jonathan Allen and Arnie Pines, like veteran Capitol Hill reporters, based on um, not, like a number of sources inside the Clinton campaign. It's like the, it's like the definitive book right. we've had so far on the Clinton campaign and just what a mess it was. And nothing in it has been disproven. As far as I know, no, right? yeah. no, and it's 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 a it's a great read. And one of the things that they report is that within 24 hours of Clinton losing, that her people came up with the narrative that the election was not on the up and up. Something was wrong with it, and it was basically the fault of Comey because James Comey reopened right. the investigation into Clinton's email server right before the vote, uh, and also it was the fault of Russia. And they, you know, went to great effort to spin this to like to the media. And it's true that right after that, like, already there had been some talk of Russia before the election, um, you know, but it really kicked up right afterwards. And I think that was partly the the result of of the work of the Clinton people spinning their PR machine really effectively. Right. And um, escalating it more and more and more into, you know, and... and, uh, and pushing it nonstop. And then that, that also pertains to the whole thing with Facebook, too. Because initially, when Facebook was asked to investigate um, alleged possible like Russian ads, they came, they came back. Their first explanation was that this was like a, a commercial operation, that some Russian click burn, cl- a clickbait factory or a business had been you know, coming up with fake ads and fake accounts right. to get followers that they could then sell uh, for a cost, like to uh, like to other vendors, right? And so Facebook concluded that it was pre- purely a commercial operation. But then, and we know we, we know this from the Washington Post, and I've written about this. Then Clinton and Obama people heard this, didn't like it, got to work, came up with their own theory, and they decided that actually that that this was a Russian government operation. Senator Mark Warner, the, Demo- the highest ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, 
Who voted for Gina Haspel, Who by the just way. voted for Gina Confirmer. Haspel. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations, Senator Warner, on, on that. Um, he flew out to Facebook's headquarters and pressured them. And then that came back. Then So in the summer of 2017. To pressure them to what? Sorry. To, he talked to them and said, we think you're missing the ball here. We think that this is actually a Russian government thing. Not just a commercial. Not just a commercial thing. And lo and behold, Facebook came out uh, in the summer of 2017 and said, and said we found these 3,000 Russian ads. And that led to uh, the indictments by Mueller of, of these <laughs> Russians. And it led to these comparisons to Pearl Harbor. Wow. Okay. So speaking of Mueller, um, he did have a, a, a bit of a role in the Iraq War, which uh, that's right. Who's uh, right. happy happy 15 year anniversary to the Iraq War? That's Can right. you tell us about that? Well, yeah. So Mueller, I mean, there's a famous clip of him testifying to Congress about Saddam, about intelligence indicating Saddam has WMDs. As uh, Director Tenet has pointed out, Secretary Powell presented evidence last week that Baghdad has failed to disarm its weapons of mass destruction, willfully attempting to evade and deceive the international community. Our particular concern is that Saddam Hussein may supply terrorists with biological, chemical, or radiological material. So thank you, Mueller. Yeah, thank you, Mueller. But, you know, he also helped oversee rounding up Muslim and other uh, brown-skinned immigrants. And actually... But not even immigrants, just, just like people after 9-11. Right. Uh, and he, he was even part of a lawsuit, uh, a class action lawsuit brought by them against that. So that's another that's another uh, uh, accomplishment. Yeah. We don't give him uh, enough credit for it. Yes. And yes. anthrax. He, I think he went after the wrong person for some anthrax. That's right. Uh, yeah. Related crime. Yeah. But I think what journalists have been focusing on, and this really is the bigger story, is um, Mueller's commitment to Brooks Brothers. Uh, He has a penchant for Brooks Brothers suits. Uh, Some really hard-hitting journalism has exposed this. He likes starched white shirts. Yes. um, Not pink or blue shirts. Yes. And he also wears a chunky Casio watch facing (laughs) inward. Yes. So, you know, it is somewhat a zero-sum game. We only have certain resources and energy to put into news coverage. Yeah. And so I think the sartorial story is the bigger one. That's like that's like a staple of like of like uh, New York Times and Washington Post um, sycophantic journalism, right. which is like if they talk about what kind of suits their their favored government official or you know um, uh, like elite person wears, then you know they really really like them. And Robert Mueller's gotten that treatment. Like the the New Yorker did that Instagram post talking about Mueller's like how he's like a he's like a he's like a his his style right and what like with his Brooks Brothers suits. I mean. This whole thing has exposed a real kind of, you know, hasn't exposed it. It's underscored the extent to which our media class sort of worships yeah. domestic elites and 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 reveres them and, and and puts them up on this pedestal of being like these these gods. We're going to save us and rub shoulders with them, right? Sure. I mean, they are part of the same social circle. Yeah, it, it it speaks again to the contempt that that elites have for normal people and their actual concerns in, in the sense that like we don't hear in the media a, about like wages, jobs going away, people not having health care, right. a million things that we could talk about. That would actually get people out to vote. Exactly. That's the other weird thing. It's like there's this weird hysteria that leads to a kind of, it's not even self-interest anymore. I mean, it's self-interest. Well, I want to return to what you said about privilege, but we know that the issue of Russia does not excite people. No, it's obvious. Already <laughs> Trump haters. It's, it's, who we don't need to convince. 
there's all these articles where people, you know, like uh, BuzzFeed had, had done yeah. them. There was just a piece in the Daily Beast talking about Democrats are even now frustrated right. with with cable news bookers. Yeah, because they said they, they they say the Democrats can't even get on cable news unless they want to talk about Russia. Right. Right? It's really funny. It's right. like the like Democrats are now snitching on cable yeah, news. Yeah, nice. Uh, and on each other, right? Because each, they're snitching yeah. on each other for talking only about Russia. Yeah. You, Claire McCat. Claire McGaskill, yeah, uh, yes, yeah. one of her spokespeople, said enough already. Well, the DNC recently sued the Russian right. government, um, and you know, like uh, for and all these other individuals for yeah. this alleged conspiracy. Uh, WikiLeaks. It was WikiLeaks. Um, Donald Trump Jr. was definitely one of them. Oh yeah, it was yeah. A whole bunch Trump, of Trump right, right. Donald Trump Jr., WikiLeaks, and um, Putin. Yeah, and, and the Russian Federation. Like it, it's, yeah. it's like. This is what the DNC is putting its time into. Instead of like trying to grapple with the fact that they lost to Donald J. Trump. Right. This is what's so fascinating, right? Let's say that all these things played a role. Let's say WikiLeaks, just for argument's sake, WikiLeaks, Putin, Donald Trump Jr., right? The Democrats don't have control over WikiLeaks, Putin, Donald Trump Jr. Sure. They have control over their own party and all the mistakes that they made. Yeah. Why not focus on the things that actually have practical takeaways? Because I, they're more interested. They're not interested in like you know building a genuine opposition or a democratic uh, or a strong democratic party. Right. They're interested in protecting their own privilege. What can so, you talk about? This so all these think tanks no. like like the, the the Center for American Progress, um, the Democratic Party uh, leadership. They all um, ran a. They ran a terrible. Like they all backed Hillary Clinton both in the primary, and in the general. They put you know a, a lot of resources into her. Not into Wisconsin or no, not, well, into not into Latino Wisconsin. outreach. Yeah, but and, yeah. And Donald Trump embarrassed all of them. He right. he, he kind of he like freestyled this campaign. Yeah. He had like half the money. He uh, but he. For whatever reason, I don't know how, but he somehow tapped into voters' concerns. He said the right things to to the right yeah. number of people. Now it was all con, of course. Of course. He was but lying he, to his he, people. He resonated with people's outrage. He did. That he, doesn't mean that he's for the working class, he, but he certainly seemed upset in a way that Hillary Clinton didn't. <laughs> he did seem upset. He exploited it somehow. Right. He, I'm surprised in his little bubble he recognized it, but he did, which speaks to the fact that he was like. Even in his bubble, he was more in touch with the people than the Democrats right. were, which, well, is, which is kind of scary. Sad. Well, and yeah. Nina Turner, she said that Donald Trump, he can, he acted at least like he felt people's pain in a way that Hillary Clinton didn't. Exactly. Of course, as I, I'm like a broken record, but the different, and then people compare him to to Bernie Sanders. The difference is not insignificant. It's literally you're angry, I get it. Blame Muslims and Mexicans. That's Trump. Yeah. And Sanders is you're angry, I get it. Blame structural inequality, exactly. avarice, the billionaires. Yeah. So these people who lost to the worst candidate ever, um, instead of saying like, geez, like what what lessons can we draw for this? Maybe next time we should run a campaign that's actually about, that's like about policy instead right. of just because like the, the Hillary campaign was although she had some she she did have some uh, she did have a platform and some of it wasn't that bad right but you know, I don't think most people know what it was or we, remember but they didn't talk about right. it as much and now they can say that they tried but you know they like their ads the majority like there was a study of her ads and the right. bulk of them like were policy free like the vast majority so you know instead of looking at all this and saying what can we learn from it. They're doubling down on a narrative that puts the all the responsibility not on them, right. but on a foreign government, Russia, and on, and on this like evil Trump circle. So it's something that they don't have to take responsibility for. So what does that tell you when you're not willing to take responsibility for your own actions? You're not 
interested in an actual positive outcome. You're just interested in protecting yourself. Yeah, exactly. And your little racket you right. have going. And all these consultants and all these operators, and they don't want to lose their their jobs or their connections. Yeah. I mean, I really, it's really pretty um, infuriating, right? When you think that they're prioritizing their own reputations over actually defeating Donald Trump. Yeah, and they're exploiting people's genuine uh, fear of Donald Trump for that end because they're they're selling people this idea that this is what's going to get him. Like, this is what he's done. Right. This is what got him elected, this is whole Russia thing. Uh, and this is what's going to bring him down. Right. And so in the service of their own privilege, they're undermining people's ability to fight back and actually stand up for their own rights and their own benefit and toward and stand up for policies that could actually help people. So they're actually like co-opting, uh, redirecting the energy needed to defeat Trump into something that won't actually work. Yes. You guys, we're trying to give you helpful tips here. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Aaron. Um, again, you can find Aaron's writing at The Nation. You can find him at The Real News. You can find him on Twitter at Aaron J. Mate. Mm -hmm. And again, you were doing such great work on Russiagate, and I'm so honored to have someone who's been smeared as a Putin uh, stooge, Putin apologist, uh, by, by people who you don't want to be getting compliments from anyway, so. I'm honored as well. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. See you later. I'm Katie Halper. You can find The Katie Halper Show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter. Make sure you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show, because there you can find bonus content, including our extended interview with Aaron. Bye. My co-host Gabe Pacheco and I will be doing a live taping of The Katie Helper Show Saturday, June 30th at 7 p.m. at Caveat. And our special guest will be writer Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People and What's the Matter with Kansas. Again, that's Saturday, June 30th at Caveat. Caveat is located at 21A Clinton Street, and the tickets will be up shortly at caveat.nyc and at the Katie Halper Show Facebook page. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes. 